Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Transportation Task Force agenda has been released by the Ontario government, but there's very little detail about what alternatives they're talking about and what they might even be considering. You know, it's been 23 years since every teacher in Ontario took to the picket lines. Well, today you can reset that clock as they're all out today. We'll talk about the implications of that. And the controversial facial recognition technology, Clearview AI, has been tested by Hamilton Police Service. Deputy Chief Frank Bergen joins us to talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Ontario government has, uh, in their generosity, uh, shared some of the Transportation Task Force agendas uh, that have been going on over the last little while. This, of course, is the uh, task force that was struck by the uh, Transportation Ministry some weeks ago uh, after they cancelled their uh, support for the LRT project here in Hamilton. And uh, we're told that uh, the mandate is basically to decide, well, there's a billion dollars on the table here. Um, It's not going to go to LRT. We don't think it is anyway. Where is it going to go? How's it going to be spent? And who's going to make that decision? So, And uh, by the way, the stuff that they've released to us so far is not really helpful in in trying to craft a picture as to what's going on and where they might be going on this. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer, has been following this story for the longest time, and uh, we'll continue. And he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us his read on this morning. John, how are you doing today? Just fine, Bill. Nice to be with you. Good. Well, we know that these guys take, uh, they're very punctual when it comes to their lunch breaks. Uh, that's good. You don't know more than 30 minutes, so these guys are, are dedicated. Uh, apparently, the topic of LRT, according to these agenda, came up a couple of times, but we don't know who made any presentations, what was discussed, or anything else. This is not a whole lot of help to us, is it? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble getting my head around why they should be doing their negotiating in public. Um you know, I would back it up, Bill, and say, why are we in this situation? Why do we have a task force uh, deciding something that uh, that our council should have decided? And and the answer, quite simply, is that this council has absolutely failed this community. Um, they've had a year and a half since uh, Ford was elected, and he made it very clear even before the election that uh, that he was uh, not dogmatic about LRT and that he was willing to consider other transportation and transit projects. And then he got elected and he repeated it two or three times in 2008, uh, 2018, pardon me. Um, it seems to me it would have been prudent for those members of council, particularly those that have been skeptics of LRT, to strike some kind of a subcommittee and start drawing up a list of alternative projects. That could have happened entirely in the open. It could have happened with uh, public delegations, uh, although I shudder when I think of some of those marathon meetings. But nonetheless, the same people could come back and make the same points again, if that would be helpful. And uh, this thing could have been done in an orderly public way, but they 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 just failed us totally, and uh, now uh, I hope there's not too many members of council that are whining about this lack of uh, so-called lack of transparency because well the mayor is they did it the mayor is one and, and I've heard off you know anecdotally about about some other people that feel as if they've uh, they've been betrayed by the provincial government here because they've taken the process out of their hands. Uh, and and I got to tell you something, whatever side of the issue you are on about LRT, whether you're pro it or against it. Uh, <laughs> I agree with you. I think council is is responsible for their own inaction in a situation like this. And uh, if nothing else, we're finally going to get a decision and some movement on on what's going to happen here. And and I'm not so sure that we would have if council still had this in, in within their agenda. Well, I hate to I hate to bring up the stadium, but there's another example where where council dropped the ball on a major issue affecting the community. And uh, once again, uh, had it not been for the intervention of the provincial government. Uh, we would have not solved that problem. Um, at the end of the day, the province had to step in with $20 million and save us from ourselves. And uh, here we are again. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's absurd, really, Bill, when you think about it. We're, we are the only community, I, I would say, in Canada that, has, that, that for all of the failures uh, of this council, uh, just a total abdication of responsibility, that there's nonetheless being rewarded with a billion dollars to spend on uh, on infrastructure. And, uh, you know, I, it, it almost makes you feel like the province views Hamilton as a basket case that needs to be given special attention. Uh, and, and thank God, uh, you know, that we're at least getting that consideration. 
Yeah, and I know that uh, the council members bristle every time you bring up the analogy between this and the stadium issue, but I think there's some there's some lessons to be learned there. And and to your point, John, we now know, of course, about that infamous meeting that apparently happened at Queens Park, uh, where a, a couple of the area MPPs, so, uh, you know, Sophia Angelides and I guess Ted McMeekin was there, and basically had everybody in a room and said, "Leave your cell phones outside. We're e- we're going to fix this up, and we're either going to come out of here with an agreement, or you're not getting a stadium." And so those are the two options. This yeah, government, she, uh, this uh, government, Sophia, I know, parked herself outside Dalton McGinney's office yeah. uh, to to uh, lobby him for the twenty million dollars that that was finally what made made that happen. But uh, you know, that's that's ancient history. But a lot of the same players, uh, you know, because of the nature of our um, office for life uh, kind of situation here in Hamilton, a lot of the same faces, frankly, were around the table then with that project that are still there now and um this this entire thing of uh you know having the 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 project sort of taken out of their hands is is just uh, unbelievable i don't know why the public isn't more incensed about this i mean every time one of these counselors gets on your show and talks about secrecy and that uh i i just think it's uh it's it's really rich that uh they even have the nerve to discuss this for those, and and you're right. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is I we've heard the rumors, John. I mean, you and I both have sources within Queens Park, and I mean, not just among the elected people, but others that work there, and uh, and and we get little tidbits of information. And I I don't think it's any secret because I've talked about it, and I know you've written about it in the Bay Observer many times. Uh, the provincial government, and it doesn't matter which one it is, whether it's the McGinney government, the Wind government, and now the Ford government. Uh, get awfully frustrated any time they have to deal with Hamilton City Council. And, and I can understand that they may just have said, look, we're not going down this road anymore. I mean, there's, there's a responsibility the council has to handle here where they just they kick things down the road, they obfuscate, and they, they well, we want this, no, we don't. I, I can understand the frustration at the other end. Well, there should have been some some better leadership, and I mean, uh, this this is an area where, where, you know, the people that I feel really let us down on council were those people... I mean, if you were for LRT, obviously you're you're not going to be leading the discussion about how to spend the money on something else. But there were, I I think, a, a plurality of councillors who were either against LRT or skeptical about it. They should have taken the lead on this thing, and and we could have had an entirely transparent process uh, by now. Uh, there's no way the government, any government, wants to set up a you know, basically, they've taken the keys to the car away from us, and uh, th- nobody, no government, really wants to engage in a process like that because the optics are not good. And uh, but here we are. I mean, what was the alternative? Uh, well, the alternative was to pull the funding altogether, which uh, it w- was always a mandate. The and other, al- John, they considered. Uh, you know, I mean, here we're getting a billion dollars. Um, <laughs> You know, for, uh, you know, certainly not because we've been a great partner with this provincial government. Um, you know, it, I mean, some of the rhetoric that's come out of that council chamber about this government uh, has, has, is certainly not conducive to getting a billion dollars to play with. You know, there's a political reality that uh, we discussed at ad nauseum, I guess, before the last provincial election. Uh, it was obvious to anybody who wanted to pay attention that uh, the, the days of the Wynn government were numbered. I mean, they were not going to get reelected. We all knew that. Uh, I think even the, the liberal MPPs knew that was going to happen, and and more than once we talked about the possi- uh, the, the the reality here that look at if you guys, meaning council, are s- behind this project, uh, you better get a shovel on the ground pretty soon, uh, because if you kick this down the road again, the new government's going to reassess everything. And we d- and he Ford was upfront about that. I don't like the policy, but he, you know he said we're going to start slashing, we're going to start saving money, and he's going to chop, chop, chop. And you had to know when he said he was going to try to find six billion dollars in saving, is a one great big fat one billion dollar thing right here that they were looking at. Now, apparently the money is still on the table, uh, but the project was going to be in peril, and everybody knew that. Yet they didn't seem to do anything. It was kind of like whistling past the graveyard. Oh, we're fine here. No, you weren't. Well, you can you can even go back further. You can go back to 2017 when Patrick Brown was still the leader. Uh, he came to Hamilton and said that, you know, and I think even in 2017 we had a pretty good idea that uh, the current government or the, the wind government was not going to be reelected. Uh, the polls were certainly indicating that. And even he said that he would be open-minded about how the money got spent. So, and, and of course, uh, you go back to even Kathleen Wynne, 
uh, had said two or three times uh, when she was cornered. They, you know, reporters. I can remember Randy Rath, the CH uh, bureau chief in at Queens Park, uh, really pinned her one day on the issue and and said, "Is it LRT or nothing?" And she just kept coming back at him and saying, "It's for transit." So if council had shown any any inclination even back then. Uh, that there that there might be a, a an appetite for a plan B uh, on transit, um, she probably could have been persuaded. I, I do have a problem with the transparency or lack thereof in this situation. And and I, again, I've heard the whinings from some of the counselors that they've been shut out of the process. And I agree with you. I think it's their own fault that they're in that situation. But they we are qualified in, themselves. Well, pretty much, yeah, they have. But uh, there's only a week left until the uh, the mandate uh, apparently for this task force, John. And and we talked to the chairperson, of course, Tony Valeria, a week or two ago when he was here in studio, and he felt pretty comfortable that they could probably meet that deadline with what they have to do right now. Uh, which begs the question, because it's just about every person you talk to who has some expertise in, in transit and these things says that, look, it, for them to have such a short time frame to be able to make the determination of what, how to spend a billion dollars, they, and I mean the ministry, I don't mean the task force, probably already have a pretty good idea where they want to allocate this. I, I would I would think so, and and indeed, um, if if they had to, you know, sort of make it up uh, in the short time span they had, um, that you probably wouldn't get a good result, but you know, I mean, they are looking uh, at at uh, existing, uh, well planned out uh, transit plans. They're they're certainly looking at uh, you know the the rapid ready and the ten year uh, master transportation plan that Hamilton somehow miraculously managed to pass in the middle of all this uh, LRT uh, fuss. So, I mean, there are some foundational documents and studies uh, that that have existed and, and, and were not done in a rush. They were done, you know, in a proper uh, sequence of, of uh, events. So it's it's not like they're starting with a totally blank page. I, I think a lot of what the task force is reviewing are, are existing uh, doc, documents, studies, studies, uh, uh, proposals both from the city and also uh, stuff that the uh, that both IO and and uh, the transportation ministry. Um, it's a well resourced committee. That much I know. I, uh, that you know they're they're not just the the five six members sitting around looking at each other. There's there's good staff support. Uh, they can ask for uh, whatever they need to see in terms of documentation. So they're not operating in a total vacuum. Are we to assume that uh, whatever the recommendations are, and we may never know those recommendations, by the way, because that's going to be confidential. But when we'll the, the result, well, we'll the well the ministry doesn't even tell us that. They just said that they will make an announcement. They may or may not uh, undertake the recommendations. They may have their own list and simply say, "Thanks a lot, guys," but we t- we respectfully disagree. We'll never know that conversation. But they are at some point going to say, "Okay, here's the list. Here's what's going to happen." Uh, there's going to be a lot of unhappy people in this community. Well, there's always unhappy people in this community. Um, you know, I've I've been doing news here for way too long, and uh, you know, there's that that so be it. Um, you know, that's uh, unfortunately we are a community that uh, tends to get uh, polarized on on major issues, and uh, there's simply no middle ground. And certainly in the case of LRT, there was absolutely no willingness to even consider uh, a plan B, even though we had a a runway of a year and a half to do something meaningful. This council, uh, just abs- just a total uh, failure in leadership. Uh, you know, it's something that, that we really, you know, you talk about Sewergate, uh, you know, but Sewergate at the end of the day was a mechanical failure that didn't get, and you know, and then things flowed out, uh, pardon the expression, from there uh, in terms of council's response. But this is this is an area where it's 100% on council. They they could have dealt with this issue. They they could have taken a measured response, uh, a transparent response. They didn't do it, and we get what we got. You know, it's interesting about this too because I know it, it, kind of a variation on that theme because there are a lot of people that were pointing during the expressway debate some years ago that uh, the anti-expressway people were holding this up by injunctions and this that and the other thing. And of course, every time there's a delay, it costs more money. But ultimately, that got built and it cost a lot more than it should have. 
Uh, but those were the people that were opposed to the project. It's um, amazingly, John, just looking at some of the actions of some of the councillors, one of the reasons this council dragged this project out much longer than they probably should have were the pro-LRT people that kept, oh, can I have a report on this? Can I get this? Can I get this? Uh, you know, should should uh, the ATU workers be involved in this? Well, we need to study that and ev- everything they could possibly think of. And, and it just instead of simply saying, let's move this thing along, they don't seem to be able, have the capacity to, to simply move things along. Well, I think in that case, Bill, the, the, the reason uh, really came down to the fact that there was never total confidence that they had the votes. Um, I think there was always a, an uncertainty that if they called the question, uh, they might find themselves on the wrong end of an 8-7 or 9-6 vote. And, um, you know, that was a problem. And, and, of course, the other problem was just in the process. Uh, we all knew that at the end of the day, the final decision would be based on the cost of the operating and maintenance agreement. And after 10 years, we still didn't have that, and we weren't going to get it until next year. But if it, if it really turned out to be a billion dollars over 30 years, as the government suggested, if it was anywhere near that kind of a number, um, the, the project probably would have been turned down at that point because many members of council had, had made it clear that they were waiting to see that before they, they made their final, final decision. Well, at least a week from now, I guess, uh, we'll get some sort of an indication, I hope anyway, as to where we're going and uh, where that money's going to be spent. John, I we'll talk... I think we will. I, I think the, um, you know, the, the work will be done more or less on time. We'll see uh, just how this rolls out over the next couple of days. I know we'll talk about this in the future. John, as always, thanks so much for this. Great, Bill. Thanks. John Best, of course, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, for the first time since 1997, uh, 500,000 teachers are off the job today here in the province of Ontario. A total shutdown of public education. Uh, The public board, the Catholic board, the French boards, they're all uh, off today picketing. I just looked across the road here to Westdale Collegiate across the road from us here at the radio center. And uh, the picket lines are out there, as they are in many other school areas. And uh, we are expecting a massive demonstration at Queen's Park uh, in just a little while, as a matter of fact. And uh, Global News reporter Dave Woodard is on the scene. Dave, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good morning, Bill. It's a chilly day for uh, any kind of a protest, I guess. But uh, uh, what's the scene as, as you look out there right now, Dave? So right now it really seems as that it's uh, just coming together. Uh, about 15 minutes ago there were only uh, probably a few dozen teachers here, uh, but all along the uh, lawn of Queen's Park as well as across the street and, and down the uh, University Avenue, which if you know Toronto is one of the main uh, arteries, uh, there's a lot of teachers, a lot of signs all starting to come together. I hear they're being piped in right now. Uh, in the background, <laughs> I can hear that, that they are. Yes. If you're going to do an, uh, any kind of a display and any kind of a, a protest like this at Queen's Park, you better have numbers because that's a pretty big area, isn't it, Dave? Absolutely. I mean, just a few months ago, there was a climate change uh, protest that it was it was a huge protest that was uh, here at Queen's Park. And if you saw any of the visuals from it, you saw uh, just how big it was because of the fact that it's a, it's a, a large area and it was packed. Um, now, the teachers say that they're not going to block off any of the street, uh, so that's that's a positive. But if they're getting the numbers that they expect, so 30,000 is what they're expecting, um, I'm not sure how they're going to do that, Bill. Well, obviously there's got to be some organization. I know we talked with Harvey Bischoff from the Secondary School Teachers Federation yesterday, and he was talking about some of the plans that uh, were going to be in store. They're going to be speakers and a number of other folks, and I know our sister station, 640, is going to be broadcasting on the scene there and talking to a number of these people. But the irony here, though, Dave, as, as you guys have been reporting on Global, uh, there's nobody there today. <laughs> I mean, the, the legislature doesn't sit on Fridays as a rule anyway. And uh, Doug Ford and, and Stephen Lecce and the rest of the Progressive Conservative Caucus are all down in Niagara Falls at a convention. That's right. Yeah. I mean, right now there's not a, a whole lot of uh, politicians around. I know that uh, Andrea Horvath will be uh, one of the guest speakers here a little bit later on, uh, as well as all the union heads. Uh, they're actually uh, supposed to be t- uh, speaking um, anytime now, actually. Uh, so we'll we'll have that. Uh, w- one of the things that I, I spoke to one of the uh, teachers about earlier was, you know, what kind of message do you think you're going to send if no politicians are there? Uh, and he said to me that they really just want to show a sign of solidarity. I mean, obviously, with radio and television and the Internet, 
it's not like any politician is not going to see what's going on here today. So well, it's not that he they have to be here to, to see what's going on. Um, they do feel support from the NDP. They do feel support from uh, different parents' organizations. Um, and I think that's really the point here is uh, solidarity with all of those groups. That's one of the interesting things about this scenario, though. And we've talked about this on the program many times, as you guys have, Dave. Uh, invariably, when there's a strike, and as we say, the last mass of them was back in 1997 against the Harris government, uh, the, the, the government play was usually, well, these are just greedy teachers and they're holding your kids hostage because they just want more money, they want more time off, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and, and the Ford government, I guess, tried to do that to an extent with, uh, with what they've done so far. But there's a lot more support for the teachers than there has in the past. And you mentioned some of the student groups, certainly a number of parent groups that we've talked to, but even the boards of education seem to be on side, not necessarily with the work stoppages, but with the concerns that the teachers have raised here vis-a-vis class sizes, e-learning, and things like that. Yeah, and I know a lot of the teachers' unions, they do their own polling um, to talk about, you know, who's on what side. And overwhelmingly, they say the the uh, parents are on the teacher's side of this argument. Now, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, just the way that they're presenting the the issues. The, the government is presenting saying that they can't afford uh, to pay teachers more. Uh, they can't afford uh, to make class sizes as as small as they are and the teachers are are really very strong on the messaging that it's about education it's about class sizes it's not about money so i think that's really where they have the leg up in terms of how this is going and i also think bill part of that has to do with how these strikes have been going on the elementary teachers by far have been the the uh or the elementary students have been the hardest hit by their teachers' strikes, and that's two days a week. So it's not affecting learning as much as one might expect. Um, and everyone's saying that if things go the way that they 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 are right now, all school years are going to be completed as is. So I think it's difficult when you're child is not being affected to the point where they're in at, at risk of losing the school year it's hard to, to present anything other than you know being on the side of the teachers you're right because in the past when there've been stoppages and we talked you know it's been a long 23 years since the last mass of them but there have been other ones along the way uh when you've got somebody who's in grade 12 wondering about whether or not they're going to be able to graduate and get to university or post-secondary that's when the crunch is on and you're right parents might be a little skittish about something like that but we're not there yet are we no, no, not at all. I mean, I know uh, personally that there there are uh, you know people that are looking forward to year end trips, or uh, they've got extracurriculars at the secondary level where there's sports and that kind of thing that are still going on. There are some things that are being canceled, um, but f- by and large, most things are going ahead as they would normally. People are able to get in their um, their their uh, marks. Okay, well, maybe not comments or actual report cards, but you can. Get get that information um, as well you know those grade 12 students you know applying to university they're still able to do that and they're still able to get help in finding the, that kind of information so uh, things that really matter to the students aren't being affected at this point dave what's the mood i know you've talked to some of the teachers as they assemble there in front of queen's park today uh are, are they angry frustrated what 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 do you, what sense do you get from them i would say the frustration is probably one of the biggest they they really don't know where else they can they can go they they know that they they, they've given i wouldn't say they they've 100 percent given up on the idea of getting paid better um but compensation for them is not the 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 biggest issue for them it's about the education um they don't want the online courses they don't think that the 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 students are ready for it there's not been enough consultation on it um they they're not ready to increase class sizes Uh, i know uh one of our colleagues over at uh am640 um peter sherman he was talking this morning um about the conservatives might you know be able to pull back on the class sizes as well so i think in terms of how teachers are feeling, I would say frustration because they're not sure what else they can do in order to get a deal done. Also, without having any kind of negotiations set up between the government and their unions, it's really difficult to get anything done. So um, I, I, w- I would, yeah, some frustration, I think, not really anger, but trying to get something done um, 
is where their heads are at right now. Uh, there's so many things to unpack here, and, and I know we've been trying to report on these things, but one seems to overlap with another. I mean, you talked about you know the the potential salary increase is only going to be one percent, and that was arbitrarily done by the government uh, right across all public sector workers. Uh, that's being challenged in court. So I don't even know if that's on the table right now. That's about to be heard. And it's not just the teachers. It's other public sector unions that are concerned about that, especially in light of the fact that uh, just a little while ago the Ford government gave the uh, parliamentary assistance a 14% raise. But that's going to work itself out legally in, in some way, shape, or form. But you're right. What I'm hearing time and time again, Dave, is the concern about the curriculum and, and the e-learning uh, and, and the rationalization or lack thereof, I guess, the government's saying for doing this. You know, is this really just to, to, to affect the bottom line or are we creating a better system? And I think a lot of people are skeptical right now. Right. And I, I know that Harvey Bischoff early on in uh, negotiations said, just tie, uh, just tie the increase to inflation, which really uh, annoyed a lot of people because it, it was, I mean, what is inflation this year? 3%. So that's, that's well above and beyond anything that, uh, that they'd be asking for. And I think that's where the government actually initially got that talking point about compensation. Um, but there are a number of issues. I mean, we, we talk about it only being a couple, but a couple of weeks ago when I was talking to Sam Hammond, he was saying that they were able to get pretty close on three or four issues. But when it came to things like special education, uh, they, they couldn't come to an agreement. Uh, things like all-day kindergarten, they couldn't come to an agreement. So there are very basic things that are part of an everyday classroom right now uh, that the government's trying to scale back on and the, the union doesn't want to budge. So there are so many issues, like you said, Bill, that, that they can't decide on, and, and that's a really big issue in terms of when they're going to be able to get a deal. Well, and therein lies part of the problem. That's only going to get resolved if they get across the table from each other, and, and in a lot of co- situations, they're just not there yet. And hopefully, maybe this is going to motivate somebody to do this. Uh, Jeff, or Dave, rather, I'm sure we're going to be watching for your reporting uh, right through the course of the day today. Try to stay warm, and uh, I know we're going to get some of the reports through the course of the day. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Good talking with you. Dave Woodard, of course, a global news reporter who was on the scene at Queen's Park. And uh, uh, those folks that we were just talking about, Harvey Bischoff, Earl Manners, and, and other union leaders, are all on the scene there for this uh, mass demonstration that's going to be happening as uh, teachers are off the job today. So where are we going on this, and what's the problem? When are we going to get finished with this? Uh, let's bring uh, Jeff Sorensen into the conversation, president of the Hamilton Wentworth Elementary Teachers Local, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Jeff, thank you for the time on what is uh, turning out to be a pretty busy day. Absolutely. I'm sitting outside Churchill High School right now uh, looking at uh, elected members, ETFO members, and OSSTF members all in a single picket line. Well, as uh, Dave Woodard from Global News was just telling us, I don't know if you heard the conversation, he's down at Queen's Park right now, uh, and, and looking at the assembling crowd here, and uh, I, I know it's an overworked, use, overused word, but I mean, solidarity seems to come to mind here, Jeff. I mean, parents, uh, boards of education, everybody seems to be saying, look, we've got to sit down and talk about the issues that you and I have talked about in the past, and it's not necessarily about compensation. It's about e-learning, it's about class sizes, it's about uh, the, the, you know, the availability of certain courses for students that want to pursue post-secondary education. There's, there's a lot on the table that needs to be discussed here. Absolutely, and I want to say that compensation hasn't been so far the, uh, except for, as you've said, the fact that it was imposed upon us uh, as with all public sector workers. Uh, compensation really hasn't been brought up that much at the bargaining table yet. Uh, it's been those other issues, the classroom issues, the spec ed issues, the class sizes. In high school, it's about e-learning. It's about uh, moving from 22 to 28 or 25, depending on what day it is. Uh, it, those are the issues that would fundamentally change education both in Hamilton and in Ontario. And by the way, we should talk about when they talk about average class sizes, you know, and again, I know we've done this, but the numbers mean, that doesn't mean every class is going to be 25 or 28. Some are significantly higher than that. Others, especially classes, a little bit lower, but it's a it's a matter of the concerns that are going to be raised in the classroom itself. Uh, and one of those, and, and I'm glad that uh, Dave Woodard from Global brought this up, in his conversations uh, with Harvey Bischoff and with Earl Manners and other union representatives, uh, education assistance fall under this purview as well. And uh, I guess the, the the argument here, Jeff, is going to be, I mean, is the government, you know, dedicated right now to giving our children the best possible education, or are they just trying to cut costs? Uh, I'm fully in support of their, their position as the latter position. It's about cutting costs. It's about uh, 
you know, creating a crisis in public education. It's about creating a, a way forward to get private schools uh, and charter schools in Ontario. Um, you know, if it's good enough for the wealthy, it should be good enough for every student in, in Hamilton. And, and that means individualized support. That means uh, EAs. That means resources. It means guidance counselors. It means all those things that, that children need. Uh, and, and really, it shouldn't be something that's uh, seen as uh, a luxury. It should be seen as an expectation that every child in Ontario gets the best possible education that they can get. We're, we're, we're you know, we're a first world country and we have a first world province. Uh, we can afford this. It's just having the political will to do it. Is it too much to ask, and this is somewhat of a rhetorical question, I guess, uh, really, Jeff, uh, that if the government's going to institute changes to the system, uh, that they justify why they're doing it? And I I get the reason. I know every time we talk about this, I always get emails, like, come on, they're the government, they can do what they want. Yeah, I understand mandates with majority governments, but when we're talking about something as sensitive as education, uh, you'd like to think that there's some research been done on this to say, you know what, this is going to improve what's going to be happening here. Uh, I don't. To, I, to use the old teacher's phrase, I don't see the work they've done on this. They just gave us the answer. You don't, you don't get full marks for that. No, and and the answer, uh, if you look at any uh, educational study, uh, class size is important because it's more time with each individual student. We know that being able to talk one on one with students during class time is is so important, especially in early years. Um, we know that full-day kindergarten, the model that we have, which is currently being followed or, or imitated by Quebec, um, we know it's a great model. Uh, for some reason, our government looks as their exemplar to Alabama, uh, 49th out of 50 states in terms of education. Uh, I don't know why, except for the fact that it's cheap uh, and it creates a crisis in education. And again, it, it, it goes to where they want to go, which is to reduce taxes, to have that old austerity agenda. Uh, you know, if you can't pay for it yourself, I guess in Ontario you don't deserve it. One of your colleagues actually classified this as an attack against the public education system. Is that how you feel? Oh, clearly. Clearly. Uh, it, it, it's it, And I can't, I can't have to be careful. I don't want to speak on behalf of my secondary school counterparts. Um, but, but I know what they're facing in, in high schools now is, is revolutionary in terms of the impact it's having on course selection. I can speak to my own son. He's in a class where uh, there are three classes in one, uh, a grade 10 class, a grade 11 class, and a grade 12 class. And the teacher literally goes from room to room to room to try to teach three classes at the same time. I don't know how anybody can see that that's quality education. Well, that was, and I'm going to go way, way back to, I, I can remember those mixed classes when I was in elementary school way back when, uh, and it wasn't productive, and that actually served as a motivation for that government of the day. It was the Robarts government, eventually the Davis government, uh, with the Hall-Dennis report and a number of others. I know I'm getting into the weeds here with educational history that said yeah, we've yeah. got to revamp that. How can we do this better? I haven't heard this government ask, how can we do it better? I've heard them ask, how can we do it cheaper? Exactly. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's about taxing. It's about uh, making the wealthy uh, able to take their tax dollars and and, uh, and not help out the province. I mean, it, it really is, education is an investment. You, you can either spend it on schools or you can spend it on prisons. Schools are much more efficient, much more equal, much more egalitarian. Uh, it's, it's what we've all been doing for a century is trying to move ahead. And it benefits us all. The more people with an education, the more people... Uh, who benefit from education, uh, they're engaged citizens, they're informed citizens, they eventually get positions that uh, pay tax dollars. Uh, it's better for everybody. I don't understand why this government, uh, well, I guess I do, uh, understand why this government is uh, is going down the road. Uh, some people have said not only is it an attack on public education, it's an attack on unions. And, and from what I can see, I'd have to agree. Jeff, when you talk to the head of your union, the elementary school teachers, uh, Earl Manners, uh, and we talked with Harvey Bischoff again, as I mentioned just a day or two ago, part of the frustration here is they're not even at the table. I mean, there have been some negotiations. I don't want to give the impression that nothing has happened and no discussions. But how can you solve this? How can you resolve this? How can you come to some sort of an agreement if you're not even talking? I mean, right now, the only talking points we're getting from the government, from the minister, or even from the premier from time to time, are in front of the microphones at a, a, a media blitz, but no discussion with you. And it's that's where this is going to get solved. It is, and that's what we've also told the mediator, is that we're ready to talk at a moment's notice. 
uh, give us a call if something changes, if the government is willing to come off the original positions that they presented months ago, uh, we're ready to talk. We're, we've never said we want, uh, you know, we're not willing to move. We want a negotiated, fair, reasonable settlement. Uh, whether that includes compensation, full-day kindergarten class caps, we understand that we live in a democratic society and uh, that we can't get everything we want. We'd love to, but we understand that it's a negotiating uh, process and, and that we're ready to sit at the table and come up with things that work for kids, things that work for communities, things that work for teachers. Uh, but you're right. Unless they're willing to have that same sort of conversation, I don't know where this is going to get settled. Jeff, uh, hopefully this is going to bring these folks together and we can get this settled sooner than later because the, the outcome any other way is, is, is going to be problematic. Uh, Jeff Sorensen, president of the Hamilton Wentworth Elementary School Teachers Local. Thanks so much for this, Jeff. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate Take it. Take care. Uh, by the way, interesting side note, uh, the education assistants that we've talked about are at work today. A different union. I mean, with some of them, anyway. Uh, and, and they were told that, yeah, there's going to be no classes, there's going to be no teachers, and there's going to be no students. But they're, I don't know what they're doing. But I was told they had to report to their schools today just the same, which is rather bizarre. Hope somebody brought a deck of cards. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Word out today that uh, Hamilton Police, some members anyway of Hamilton Police, uh, had tested the controversial facial recognition technology, Clearview A1, uh, which is uh, raising some concerns Well, with people like the Privacy Commissioner and a number of other folks that are concerned about civil liberties. Uh, Hamilton Deputy Chief of Police uh, Frank Bergen uh, has responded to this, uh, told the officers to stop. Uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on what's going on. Deputy Chief, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you on the show again. Good morning, Bill. Thank you very much. And uh, let's just let's just be really clear about this as well, um, that, that police are always confronted with, you know, exploring and leveraging new technology and looking at devices. Uh, certainly the topic of Clearview... Um, artificial intelligence, AI, uh, has gotten a lot of attention. And we understand that, and we want to assure the, the public at large uh, that we have not, uh, and nor do we have any intentions this time to be using this um, software or this app, if you will, uh, for any investigative or any records management um, access at all. Maybe, Frank, if we could back up just a little bit for the listeners who may not be aware of, of what the technology is all about, could you maybe explain in, in a couple of words exactly what it is and what, what it could be used for? Yeah, the way we, we've been presented, the marketing materials, et cetera, and, and, and the access that our members got through key access from a, from a conference, um, it, it's facial recognition, I guess, in the most simplest terms. Uh, the way we understand it is that um, hundreds of thousands of images have been gathered, and, and they're using terms that I certainly don't understand, Bill, <laughs> scraping, et cetera. And, uh, and it's, as such, it's, it's a tool that then you would, uh, from a policing perspective, um, try to say, hey, how could I throw a, a face in there just to see whether or not I get a hit? Uh, because obviously what they do is, uh, if I understand this properly, and I'm probably in the same area as you are, Frank, when it comes to understanding of this technology, uh, they basically just, I guess, scan social media to try to find like-minded. In other words, it's like trying to find a match. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. And, and that's got to, let's, let's be clear, um, that, that we, we, we know the, the controversies and the implementations of photo radar, and, and we understood uh, what its purpose is. We know about automated speed enforcement, which is now legislation to be um, affixed to a community safety zone for neighborhood safety initiatives uh, that we can do. So those technologies, and that's not, it's not new, um, closed circuit TVs, things of those natures, it's not new, but what, what seems to be at issue here in which we absolutely understand from the Ontario Privacy Commission uh, is in fact that there has to be transparency and an understanding that if somebody in this social media, whatever, all of a sudden now uh, had that same Facebook, Twitter, slash whatever image uh, being used in, in, in uh, an investigative tool. You know, you mentioned some of the other things like photo radar, closed circuit TV cameras, things of this nature. And, and well, you've been around and, and in the biz long enough, Frank, as, as I have in this one, uh, talking about these sorts of things, that even that those, those were controversial at their time, too, and, and I guess in some people's minds still are, but they seem to be have, have become more accepted. Uh, I'm going to ask you to just kind of look into your crystal ball for a second. Are, are we just talking about the premature stages here of, of, of Clearview AI as, as opposed to, you know, this is something that's verboten? Is it something that we're just not sure of at this stage? It's still under the investigative. How would you categorize that? 
Yeah, let's let's just exactly. I think Bill, you you said it correctly. Is is for us to have adopted a, a software application to use for an investigative thing without proper, um, you know, due care and due diligence, uh, and not going through a chain of command and going through uh, conversations and and actually um, certainly under the guidelines of the Ontario Privacy Commission is completely wrong. Uh, the historic. Uh, introductions of closed circuit TV, uh, the photo radars of the 80s and 90s, and, and, and moving up to today's date, uh, absolutely went through much public consultation. And, and, and as you know, the initial um, introduction of, of photo radar was then suspended mm-hmm. based on the fact of the arbitrary uh, collection of, of revenue. Uh, so these conversations are important, and they will speak to, uh, and I think we are agreeing that whether facial recognition or, or the implement, implementation of different uh, artificial intelligent devices, that's part of emerging technologies and leveraging technologies for policing to ensure community safety. But those are steps that are down the road. These are things that the public has to be comfortable knowing. We're not adopting these things in a nefarious way in order to have a hand up on criminal you know, investigations. Yeah, but there's got to be a balance here, doesn't there? I mean, when you, you, you look at these, and again, I'm, I'm going to talk about this as you just did in the context of, of other controversial uh, identification methods that have been used in the past that at one time were, were probably, you know, verboten, but now they, they seem to be mainstream. And and they, they in many cases, the CCTV cameras and, and, of course, photo radar are pretty effective tools when it comes to policing these days. Do you, and maybe this, you know, two or three years from now, we could be having the same conversations that, hey, remember that when it was controversial? But it, it's it's out there, and uh, you know we can't put our heads in the stand in the sand rather and, and for, pretend it's not there. That's right, and I think though, Bill, that what what I think we've come to the realization though is, and I and I really welcome this opportunity just to remind our community is that we will still do these within the guidelines though. Uh, of, of people's um, um, rights being protected, uh, uh, certainly as articulated by the Ontario Privacy Commissioner. Uh, we just want to be very clear uh, in this particular case here is, is that uh, we would do this within the, the, that sandbox and those, those boundaries. But having said that, you're not doing it. I mean, yeah, I think you were pretty clear about that when you talked about this to the media, that uh, that you asked uh, the officers that were experimenting, I guess is maybe the word, since they got access to this during, a, I guess it was a conference they attended, that, uh, yeah, that we're, that's, that's not policy yet, so they're not supposed to be doing that. That's right. And, and let, let's actually talk that for a moment. And sure. I'll use something, uh, let's talk out of the realm of artificial intelligence. Uh, I, I, know, I, I know I have availed myself of a 30-day free trial of, of Netflix. I, I know that there are other things. So th- this, in the most simplest terms, that a policing conference is that the Clearview booth, like for argument, let's make it quite simple, uh, mentioned that here's a key card, here's an access to do a tabletop. These are standalone uh, processes that are not at all attached to our records management systems, our investigative portal, if you will. And, and we had a couple officers uh, use that key, if you will, or those access codes in order just to do generic searches in order to see what was the, the intestine veracity of the equipment. Uh, but that's very, very different from us to adapting it. Uh, one question the CBC asked me, and I think it's a legitimate question, uh, has any officer breached policy? No, they have not breached policy. This is a standalone access key code that was not attached to our, our actual operating system. Where did the key code come from then? It came from the general marketing booth of, of Clearview, and it came out of what was a, a policing conference specific to this in the fall of 2019. Uh, which is not unusual, by the way. And I, I, I can't say that I've ever attended police conferences, but anybody who's attended a, any kind of a conference with, in their given field, uh, basically there are booths set up with new technologies, new ways of doing things, etc. Some of them mainstream, some of them are, are, are cutting edge, some of them are, you know yet to be explored. Uh, but it's basically to open people's eyes to these possibilities. So obviously they talk to a rep, I guess, from Clearview and, and, and gap this information. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the, in the way of inquisitive actions, I suppose, decided to see just what this would look like. Uh, yeah, similar. You sent Bill, Bill, a great point. I, I can tell you that four or five years ago when, when police officers were introduced to drones, and introduced the ability of, of using them to map uh, a collision reconstruction or using them to, to do field studies, uh, using them now as we've seen currently in, in searches uh, for missing people. So it's the same thing. You look at something and, and, and quite often it, it tends to be three, four, five years 
ahead of where actually the service itself either has the capital fund to implement or has the actual capacity to manage the new technology. Uh, the Hamilton Police Service, I want to be clear, uh, we are not going to back away from leveraging new technology in order to manage emerging um, crime patterns and, and ensure uh, community safety. So what's the process here, Frank, as it has been, I'm sure, with some of these other technologies as they have come along? Uh, do we simply say, okay, this is what it is, uh, and yeah, that could be an effective tool. Now we have to have a discussion about the parameters. Is, is that the next step here? Yeah, Bill, the, the discussion of the parameters and that thing is what's key. Um, is a couple officers who, who think this is a, an interesting thing. They may, they may look at it and they're going to be telling their supervisor, their manager, their, their staff sergeant, etc. Uh, and, and from that, we would build a business case. A business case would then come to command through its chain of command or its, its command. And, and we would then have to make a decision. Ultimately, something of this nature as well, um, we, would need, we would need then our, our, over, our, our board approval, etc. when we're looking at things. But it would be part of that larger discussion. Uh, and I think clearly what, what this topic has, let's be very clear, uh, about facial recognition and, and certainly uh, the clear view. I, I'm, we're, we're not naive. This has become a GTA conversation uh, about what that use is. Uh, but we would go through the chain of command and process. Our policy speaks to that, and, and we would make sure that people adhere to that. To your knowledge, Frank, are there any police services that are using this technology? No, I don't. I can't speak for other police services that would use it, but what I've certainly seen, as you and everybody else has, is that there is conversations going on throughout our GTA policing partners about, again, its access to specifically this artificial intelligence. Where on the chain of command, Frank, would that discussion happen? You talked about, obviously, from the local level, you'd have to have a discussion with the Police Services Board, uh, and, and, of course, you and Chief Gert and, and Deputy Chief Diodati, of course, would do the research along with your staff and, and come up with some sort of a recommendation. But it, d does there need to be a ministry directive, first of all, before you're even allowed to do that, since this is new technology? Yeah, it, that's, that's correct. I mean, these are involved, as far as evidence, you're going to have to obviously work with our Crown Partners and the MAG, etc. But what we've gotten is clear direction from the Ontario uh, Privacy Commissioner is, is that we are not to be moving forward in this. And as you've seen as well in statements, um, is they're in fact wanting to work with police and they want to have that assurance. So those steps, and there's many, many layers of this, um, when we're looking at the acquiring of a new technology or a new equipment in a capital thing, that may stay local and it may be something about equipment or something that we're going to introduce uh, into our operating budget. Uh, that'll be local, but I can certainly see with regards to facial recognition, uh, there are many stakeholders, many partners, but more importantly, um, at the top level, the Ontario privacy commissioner. Well, exactly. That's got to be part of that discussion, I would think. And, and once they set those broad base parameters, I guess it's going to be up to each jurisdiction as to whether or not they want to, uh, to, to adhere to that and, and obviously to move forward with this. But it's, a, it's an interesting uh, discussion to have right now. And, and like I say, I saw the story and I can understand the, the comments from the privacy commissioner. And I know you, you are, are totally on side with what Mr. Beamish is thinking as well. But by the same token, uh, you know, we want to look down the road just a little bit and say, I, I'm wondering if, if someplace within the ministry and within the Privacy Commissioner, they're having that discussion about, okay, uh, we can't pretend this isn't here. Uh, how can this be used effectively where it's not going to breach those, those privacy concerns and individual rights? And that's, that's a discussion that has to be had before you move forward here. That's correct. At the national level, we have to also respect the Charter, and from that we will look for guidance and work with our partners um, at all levels of government, but more importantly with our policing partners, to make sure that we are in line with what is the expectations of us introducing this technology. And that happened, as we mentioned, with all the other stuff. You, t you talked about drones, we talked about the CCTV and a number of other things like this. Uh, technology has to be a, a friend to, to police services, obviously, and with these new innovations, uh, it's hard to keep up with them, isn't it, Frank? I mean, almost every week there's something new coming along right now, so this is, uh, you're really moving at an accelerated pace here to, to, to try to make that determination about how you can use that technology without, you know, offending people and within the boundaries of that have been set up already, as you say, by the Charter and by uh, the Privacy Commission. You're right, Bill, and, and luckily uh, we are surrounded by very bright um, police officers and civilians within our organization and within the policing community that, that have the ability and, and intuition and, and are astute enough to look at emerging technologies. And, and again, we make sure we follow process. 
this is a great example that when in retrospect we look at it, we did follow the process and, and in fact we didn't breach anything. So this is a great example, although it may have been at, at first blush very controversial, and it is if it were to be exploited, but uh, I'm confident that our young, uh, young bright uh, civilians and, and members of our organization are fully uh, aware of what emerging technologies, and many of them, um, and, and many of them think outside of that box, and that policing box has to continually be expanded. And, and I want to be clear on this. I don't want people to, to, to come away with the wrong impression here. Uh, we, when you see a headline that says, Hamilton Police tested controversial facial recognition technology, Clearview AI, uh, that was not an official uh, test. That was some people that have been to a conference that were che checking it out. Uh, there was still no official policy. Well, the official policy is don't do it. I mean, that, that's where you stand right now. Yeah, we're very clear, and I, I actually always respect and I read every headline that I always can because I love the way it, it gets you into a story, uh, and so I don't take anything away from that. But at no time have the Hamilton Police Services ever breached what would be that, that privacy firewall uh, of getting any, any investigative explorations or any of our records management systems have not uh, been fed into any of this technology, but more specifically Clearview AI. Well, and, and to be sure, I don't want anybody also to think that the officers that were doing this did anything wrong. I mean, they were investigating uh, and checking out some technology that they'd learned at a conference. But I, we have your assurance, I believe now, don't we, Frank, that uh, this has never been used uh, in any criminal investigation uh, that Hamilton Police Services are doing. You have my assurances on that bill, and again, uh, that, that officers uh, have done nothing wrong. That officers uh, should always be encouraged with our civilian staff as well to look at emerging technology and, and leveraging those um, opportunities and have those conversations. And they know full well, uh, both by policy procedure but just by the norm, is that we would have larger conversations with chain of command. And I'm more than confident that Hamilton, that I also want to say that this, this doesn't stifle creativity, and it doesn't uh, limit us to that box because, again, uh, we have to make sure that the, the young uh, thinkers and, and, the, and the future of our policing is, is ready to be able to be agile and adapt to um, emerging trends. Well, how do a police services, not just Hamilton, but uh, anyone, I mean, your experience with GTA and here with Hamilton now as well, Frank, how do you explore and, 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 and try to find out what is cutting edge? In other words, you're always trying to look for that next best tool. Yeah, it, 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 <laughs> uh, we, we, the, the conduit or the, at least the relationships within policing is, is strong. Uh, the actual abilities to work with our um, the OACP, the Ontario Association Chiefs of Police, uh, the Canadian Chiefs of Police, and, and both the IACP, uh, their conferences as well as just um, uh, communications. We have many committees uh, set up in, in many layers of policing. So much like any other industry, uh, whether it's been in the steel industry and changing technologies with respect to uh, minerals and, and extracting different um, things, the emerging technologies within the electrical vehicles, etc. Uh, it just becomes part of our community and, and we're very, uh, very much an active participant in that community. Uh, Frank, always a pleasure having you on the program, and uh, I'm glad you could jump in here today to uh, add some clarity to this. And uh, uh, it's always fascinating to see just uh, what technologies are being developed and, and what benefit they could be. Uh, and for those that think, uh, as, as I think a lot of us do, that uh, look at there's probably a place somewhere down the line uh, for the Clearview A1 technology. Uh, we're not there yet, are we? We're not there yet, Bill, and, but thank you very much always for the opportunity to speak and, and enjoy the bright, sunny day out today. Absolutely. Thanks again, Frank. We'll talk soon. Deputy Chief of Police, uh, Frank Bergen, of course, from Hamilton Police Services. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.